Last time, we talked about how lifestyle medicine uses more of a coach approach compared to traditional medicine. And since this collaborative approach is more likely to lead to behavior change, we'll continue here to talk more about the nitty gritty of how to go about doing that. So in this lecture, we'll talk about how to integrate some specific approaches or conversational styles like motivational interviewing, appreciative inquiry, and the social ecological model. And then a five-step model for using each of these in coaching conversations that eventually lead to goal setting, specifically SMART goals, and then accountability and tracking. So how do we help people move forward? Now that you've been introduced to this coach approach, we've talked a little bit about how there's just a different way to go about sharing knowledge, um, different types of listening skills, different ways to ask questions, different approaches to problems compared to a traditional practice. And then whose responsibility is it, whether you're taking it on yourself as a practitioner or just guiding that individual to take their responsibility. We talked last time as well about how people can be at different stages in a change process. So we talked about the trans-theoretical model and how where they are in that process can determine your approach to the conversation and it can often help people move forward in their stage of change by using particular interviewing or collaboration styles of conversation so we'll talk a little bit more today about motivational interviewing appreciative inquiry and social ecological models now motivational interviewing is actually a pretty complex approach um, in fact, there are entire textbooks written about it, and oftentimes there are entire classes, three-credit semester classes, devoted to this process, depending on the type of practice or professional program that might be using it. So here, we're only devoting a small portion of one single lecture to it. We really can't do it justice in that time period. However, I'm going to introduce you to the major points of motivational interviewing, but really it takes a lot more practice and background to get really good at it. So ideally, if you see the value of this and you feel that it could be useful in your future professional lives, I highly recommend seeking out more training and more practice on this um, collaborational conversation approach. So um, I encourage you to check out, for example, the suggested book in the syllabus, Motivational Interviewing for Nutrition and Fitness, if you don't already have that on your shelf, because depending on what you're going into, that may be a really good approach um, without diving into some of the bigger textbooks on it to look at how this approach would help you in your future practice. Now, there are multiple ways that you could describe motivational interviewing. In fact, the original authors give three separate definitions, kind of depending on your perspective. Probably the simplest definition is what you see here. And that's that motivational interviewing is a collaborative conversation style for strengthening a person's own motivation and therefore their commitment to change. Now for you as a practitioner, it, you could see it as a person-centered or client-centered counseling style. And what you're really getting at most with motivational interviewing is this problem of ambivalence. In other words, 
kind of going back and forth, you know, with the pros and cons of change, you know, sometimes you feel like, yeah, I want to do this. And sometimes you're like, no, that's a lot of work. So this back and forth idea of ambivalence is what MI is in that we use that def- or, um, abbreviation, by the way, um, motivational interviewing or MI. It's really good at addressing ambivalence. Now, a longer technical definition that actually tells you a little bit more about how it addresses this ambivalence is this collaborative, goal-oriented communication style that's really looking at the language of change. And we'll talk about what I mean by that here in a moment. And you're ideally looking to strengthen their personal motivation and commitment to a specific goal. And what we're doing here is kind of having them convince themselves, having them look at their own personal reason for change. But you have to create an atmosphere of acceptance and compassion so that they can feel as though they can explore that without judgment. So let's get a little bit more into this by looking at both the underlying spirit of MI and the core processes that are used in um, this type of kind of conversation style. Now the underlying spirit of MI involves four basic tenets. And the first is a partnership. That this is a collaboration. It is not coercive. It is not meant to tell somebody what to do, but it's often described as a dance. It's a collaboration here. It is not a one-way conversation where you are telling somebody what they should be doing. And we're, you know, honoring each person's own worth. There's no judgment. We are accepting of the individual and wherever they're at. Um, looking for their own internal perspective because we can't understand everything about them because we are not the ones living their lives. And that they may want this opportunity because it's not often presented to them for self-direction and identifying and using their own strengths. And from the um, perspective of compassion, that we're giving priority to their needs here and not what we perceive might be their needs. And Evocation, in other words, bringing out, evoking what is already there. In fact, this is kind of an important quote that motivational interviewing is about what's evoking what's already present, that they already have what they need. And that we just need to bring it out of them, evoke it, that we're not trying to fix something wrong, that we're not trying to give them something that we feel is missing. Instead, they already have what they need to move forward in their own lives, that we're just helping them find that. And so the processes that we will use then to evoke that and to bring it about starts with just getting to know them. Engaging with them, building rapport, which is really important because if you want them to be honest and and really be able to feel as though they can explore wherever they're at, then they need to be able to feel as though they're accepted, right? That we are showing compassion and acceptance and non-judgment. So that requires spending a little bit of time to get to know them, um, to engage with them, build rapport. And then once you've done that, you can find the direction or focus. Um, You know, where are we going here? And this would be person-centered as well. So this is the idea that, you know, you may think you know where they need to go next, but if they're not ready to go there and they're ready to go in another direction on a different topic, then we need to explore where they're at at the moment. 
And that can be really difficult as a practitioner because you and your mind think they really need to address this. But what often happens is that may lead to, that confidence and self-efficacy may lead to them and their ability to address a larger problem. It's just maybe not the particular path you would have chosen, but that's okay. It's not your life. It's theirs, right? So the next part is evoking. And as I said here with this um, part of the underlying spirit is that we need to find their strengths, help them use those as their motivation, right? This motivation has to be discovered before they're inspired to make the next move. You can't start planning for making a change until they've found their motivation. So this planning to move forward requires quite a bit. You can't just go into it as, hey, you need to exercise more. Let's talk about how you can do that. You really need to do these other parts of the process first so that they are more likely to have a sustainable change. Because if you just go straight to planning, and planning for them without their input, it's unlikely they're going to follow through. And if they do, it may only be for a short period of time. Now, this sounds pretty logical, right? Um, as we talked about last week, though, this can be easier said than done, especially given the typical style of our healthcare approach. And given that our medical training or professional training may not always spend as much time on this as they do the technical content, right? The learning what you need to know to do your job. This relational part of dealing with patients and clients is important and does require some practice. Now, the motivational interviewing approach in healthcare. Um, you'll find in motivational interviewing, by the way, we use a lot of acronyms, but particularly in healthcare, um, and this is that recommended book, by the way, um, that could be really useful for you. This is the original author's book um, for motivational interviewing, which is also a great resource. But the thing that we often have to make ourselves do is get around our traditional approach ideas, something that is just not always natural. If, if we are really want someone to move in a particular direction, um, we tend to have that take over. And so the four guiding principles, particularly in healthcare with motivational interviewing, is to resist that writing reflex, the R in rule. This is the rule you should follow. That, you know, resist that uh, trying to say, hey, you know, you're not doing that, right? Or it would be way better if you just did this really need to do some more exercise. You know, if you continue like this smoking, you're going to die. So there's these things that you have to just, you may be feeling it and it may be totally logical to you and you can't understand why they're doing what they're doing, given that they're having all of these healthcare issues, right? But it is really important to try to understand where they're coming from. Put aside that I know what's right for this person and instead try to understand. And in order to understand, you have to listen. You have to listen to them and can't assume that you already know what they're dealing with. You can't assume that you already know what's going on in their life. And ideally, all of this should be leading to you helping them change themselves, not changing for them, which requires you to be patient, listen and understand, and then work to empower your patient or client. 
And the reason for that is so that they can move forward. And ideally, you're not going round and round and back and forth in a yo-yo type of change and then back to square one kind of thing. Because if you empower them as opposed to just doing things for them, um, that's going to be more sustainable, more long-term, and therefore a greater effect on their overall health. So the two major objectives of motivational interviewing um, is to kind of bring out this discrepancy between where they are right now and where they would like to be. So, you know, people may say, you know, I know I need to exercise more. Um, and so, but they're yet they're not doing it. So that's a discrepancy. And so if you can sort of bring that out and have an honest conversation about it, you can begin to weigh the pros and cons or decisional balance of that whole process. And just like it was discussed in the stages of change model, the TTM, you know, some people maybe actually be at different stages for different behaviors. And so while they're doing better with maybe adding more fruits and vegetables, they may still be at a very early stage of change in terms of adding in physical activity, for example. And so the more you can draw out those pros and cons and have an honest discussion about it, you can really get at this idea of ambivalence and perhaps reduce it. Now, it's totally normal to have this back and forth or ambivalence about making a change. And it kind of is rooted in this discrepancy between, you know, what you value. Yeah, I know physical activity is important. I know I need to exercise. But your actions are not showing that. Your actions are not following through with that belief or value. And the thing is here that there are often some things that are just in the way. And so by considering both sides and having an honest conversation about values and strengths, you can usually increase the motivation that can tip the balance more towards the pros of making a change. And so one of the purposes then of bringing out this ambivalence and pointing out the discrepancy in a way that allows them to reduce the what we call sustained talk. Sustained talk is something that kind of reinforces the I'm not going to change view. Whereas if you can tip the scales of ambivalence more toward the pros, you'll begin to hear more of what we call change talk in MI. And ideally, the motivational interviewing process will evoke more of these phrases and comments that help the individual kind of convince themselves. You know, it, do, it never really works for you to convince them you really need to exercise more. What does work, though, is to help them arrive at that on their own. So it's like their own idea. They are convincing themselves by finding their own reasons to change, which may not be the same reasons that you would choose for yourself or that you would choose for them. Because again, they're an expert in their own life right? So what's important about evoking change talk is that usually research shows that it can actually predict whether the behavior change is going to happen. Now, how do you know if change talk is happening? What are kind of some of the words or impressions you would get from a person or comments that they would make. Now there's, again, more acronyms here in MI. The acronym that can help you remember what change talk sounds like is called DARN CAT. And this stands for some of the different 
terms or impressions you would get from their words or conversational um, comments. So DARN stands for the things that are part of preparatory change talk. So this would be talking about things that you are getting ready to do that lead you toward the change. So D stands for desire to change. This would be if you're in the conversation with the client or patient and they say, well, I really want to exercise. So that expresses their desire to change. And sometimes that's followed up with but this or that, right? A stands for their ability to change. And this would be if you start to hear people say something like, well, I can do more weights pretty easily in the house. I've got some weights right in the living room. I could do those, you know, during commercials or something. So you hear them saying, well, I have the ability to do it. R would be a reason. And this can often be a really big motivator for people. For example, they may say, you know, if I do more exercise, maybe I'd be in better shape and I wouldn't get so winded when my grandkids want to play or when my kids want to play. Or I wouldn't get so winded when we go on family walks in the park. So these reasons to change can be very, very personal and therefore lead to the motivation. If they want to be around for their kids, they may need to be more active so that they are not, you know, having as many issues with diabetes or heart disease. N stands for the need to change. And this, again, could be very related to their health state and very personal. I need to change because I can't go much higher on my blood pressure medication right now. I really need to change so that I don't have the long-term side effects of diabetes. So these can be very personal. And again, these aren't quite yet taking any action, but they're telling you that they're beginning to think about it, right? This is change talk that tells you of their desire, ability, reason, and need for change. And the more you can explore that in conversation, the more they hear themselves say it. And we tend to believe what we hear ourselves say more than we believe others saying it. So the more they hear themselves say it, the more they're essentially convincing themselves. Now, the cat in Darn Cat stands for C, commitment to change. And this is where you hear them say, well... I'm going to go see if I can find those weights. I know they're in the house somewhere. And if I put them someplace where I can see them, you know, maybe I'll be more encouraged to use them. Or I will look into a gym membership this week. I just, I don't even know how much they cost or anything. You know, you hear them saying, I'm going to commit to doing something this week. The A stands for activation. And this is more like they're not necessarily saying I'm going to do it. It's more of a willingness. Well, you know, I'm, willing to walk a little maybe after work if I can you know find a good place or so they're they're willing to do that and then T would be their their taking steps you know I did buy new sneakers last week so I just need to use them right this is called mobilizing change talk so it's a step a little bit further than preparatory change talk they're actually more committed to it and actively taking steps um, that may not be that they're actually exercising yet, but this would kind of be that preparation stage of t the TTM, right? So they're actually doing something a little bit further than just thinking about it. Now, so how do you get people to make these kinds of comments? How do you promote or evoke change talk? This revolves around the core MI skills. And again, we've got some more acronyms here. This is a really big set of skills to try to practice for you. 
It's called ORS, and it stands for open-ended questions, affirmations, reflections, and summaries. And I'm going to ask you to sort of practice these so that you can get ready for your mock coaching conversations. And these can be good even just in your own relationships and families because it helps you to have more fruitful conversation and be better listeners, which we can all be better at, right? So O stands for ORS, open-ended questions, and these take practice because sometimes we have a tendency to ask closed-ended questions, things that can be answered by yes or no, and we want to get away from that. We want people to talk more. We want clients and patients to walk through a lot of this so that they can hear themselves, convince themselves of the need to change. So you have to start questions with things like, how might you go about doing that? What would that look like for you? Why is it important to you to increase your physical activity? Tell me more about whatever we're talking about. So these can be really good things to keep in mind. You might even want to put a post-it note up somewhere to remind yourself to start questions with these words. Um, Affirmations, then, are a really nice way to build self-efficacy. And when you notice something that might not be obvious to a patient or client, you can point it out. For example, you, you've you noticed based on when you were creating rapport at the beginning of, of a conversation that they were really creative about something that they accomplished at work that week. And so you point that out and maybe allow that to come into the conversation with moving them forward in another area you could say wow you're you were very creative with that project i i wonder how that might be useful for you in creating a new approach to your snacking habits or your exercise you could say oh you're quite resourceful that was something that maybe you could transfer to this what would that look like for you So noting their strengths, because sometimes we're not very good at sort of seeing how we can translate into another area, a particular strength or value that we have. Reflective listening is actually an extremely important skill that will allow you to not only create that rapport with them, but also allow them to hear back what they just said. And that's brilliant because not only does it allow them to say, hey, yeah, you're right, but they could say, no, that they allows them to correct you to make sure there's a good understanding. And there's many different types of reflections that can be used. And just a few examples here would be just a simple reflection where you're essentially restating something, you know, maybe paraphrasing slightly, but saying it right back to them. And again, that just allows them to sort of hear it again and correct you if you're wrong or to, to just keep on that topic, topic and reinforce it. Double-sided are a really interesting form of reflection because this will let you point out, often trying to point out during ambivalence, maybe one of the cons followed by one of the pros. So you might say, now, you mentioned you don't like formal exercise, yet you told me last week how much you loved going on a hike with your grandson. Tell me more about what you liked about that hike. So then you've reflected back and made a connection to something, but 
ended with the positive so that you can further explore the positive reasons in evoking more change talk toward, oh yeah, you're right. Maybe I just need to find the kind of activity that I enjoy so that I look forward to doing it and it's not a chore. Amplified can be interesting as well. So this is where you take what they're saying, but kind of bring it up a notch. Um, So if somebody's like, I don't have time to exercise, I am so busy already, you take it up a notch and say, you have absolutely no time for walking. And they might say, well, I don't know if that's totally true. I do probably have 10 minutes where I could, you know, at lunchtime, I just end up on social media, but I could walk then. So they're, by taking it up a notch, sometimes they'll sort of argue with themselves about it. No, I guess you're right. That's not totally true. Um, So these can be really helpful for moving the conversation forward. And I'll give you some examples of these in the module as well so that you can maybe practice these and um, get the idea of ways that these can work in the conversation. Now, summaries are kind of like a reflection, but they gather multiple pieces, perhaps through the conversation from the very beginning to the end. They're often a good way to end a conversation, but they can also be a good way to just shift gears in the middle of a conversation. You could gather some information over the course of several weeks even to say, hey, I noticed last week we talked about this and this is coming up again today. And, you know, I'm wondering if you would like to, you know, and then you, you, Um, transition the conversation into something else. So these can be a really good way of gathering information into a nice package for the client or patient to reflect on back to you. Um, And again, these all just take practice. So I'll encourage you to um, look at some of the examples and resources that are in the module for using these and give you some tips on practicing these for your mock coaching conversations coming up soon. Now we talked in the last lecture a little bit about how sharing information is different in a coach approach versus a more traditional approach in healthcare. And this is because unlike a traditional approach where we just tell them, A coach approach, particularly using MI, involves asking permission. And the acronym here is called EPE. And it stands for elicit, provide, elicit. And what you do here is you don't assume anything. You would say, tell me, what do you know about the effects of exercise on your blood sugar? And then they might tell you, oh, you know, I know this or that. And then you say, what else would you like to know about that? You know, find out what they're curious about. Don't just assume they know or don't know something. And then you can always say, okay, do you mind if I provide you a little bit more information about that? And then when you give it, you know, don't go into a full lecture because they're going to perhaps shut down. Really only give them what's relevant and keep it as short and sweet as possible because, you know, a big long lecture is quite often not going to be absorbed in that conversation. And then here's the interesting part as well. You don't just give it and then assume they're all good to go. You often need to check in with them after providing that information. Now, given all of this, what questions do you have about what I just shared? Or is there anything else you'd like to know? Can I clarify anything for you? So check in to see. They're like, you know, 
I really didn't understand that. Or I've, I, that sounds familiar, I understand. So this can be a really important thing to remember because again, it's not often the, the first thing we think of when we're hoping to provide information. So just assuming that um, they already know something or that they need this information is not the way to go. It's much better to ask permission. Find out what they know and only provide what they need at that time. Now again, this sounds logical, um, but in practice, it, it takes practice, um, lots of practice. So um, this week, maybe even in just in regular conversation with friends or family, try using more open-ended questions if possible. Begin things with what or how and practice your reflective listening. In conversations, see if you can reply back with some sort of either restating of what they shared with you or an amplification of what they shared with you. Try out some double-sided reflections and some of the other examples in the module for types of reflections that can be quite useful for moving the conversation forward. And then experiment with affirmations. These just feel good for people to hear and we don't use them often um, in regular conversation. But that in regular conversation will allow you to practice being able to note when somebody's strengths or values are showing up. Because if you learn to observe them, you'll be better able to point them out. But again, that takes practice because we don't often listen for those strengths that are coming out in somebody's conversation. Now, because MI works great for ambivalence, there may be a time when somebody's past that point, the pros have taken over, and they're really more interested in getting started um, because they're no longer on the fence about what to do. And so some of the other styles may be more helpful here. And one that I really like and that actually has quite a bit of research behind it is the appreciative inquiry model. Now, the in, this interviewing style um, searches for the best in people. It is meant to strengthen their potential, their positive potential and capacity. And what this does is seeks to always find an unconditional positive question as opposed to analyzing what's wrong in a situation. And this is, this is a different approach because we're not trying to figure out why they're not doing something. It is not problem solving or analyzing the issues as to why it's not happening. Instead, you look to find a time when something went well and then analyze what worked well then so that you can replicate it. So this seeks the good in what's happening and uses that as a foundation to build on. And what's interesting is patients or clients don't often expect this kind of approach. By flipping this conversation where you're not analyzing the problem, they often don't feel as though they are judged or criticized. Instead, you're really looking for what they've done well, which can make them feel good and feel more motivated to move forward. So let's take a look at what this might actually look like. So um, this model of appreciative inquiry is called the 5D spiral, and this is um, the abbreviation for appreciative inquiry. And at the core of this spiral model is this positivity. You are always looking to be as positive as possible, not honing in on negatives or barriers or things that haven't worked. What you're going to do first is kind of understand, define. The first D is define. Understand the patient. So this is where that rapport, setting up the stage, 
um, clarifying where they are now, understanding and empathy. And then discovering. So what is good? What went well? Appreciate what is. So that's why it's called appreciative inquiry. You are really trying to appreciate the positives in the situation. And then once you've figured out what has gone well, you can begin to dream what might be. What if you applied those same things that went well, what is good, what is positive, to where you'd like to be, where you'd like to go. And then as you design, you can co-construct that process. And this is where goal setting comes in. If we use that same positive approach, how could this situation or that situation be different? And then, you know, implement it. Find out how it all turned out. As you ask the client or patient to deliver on that goal, then you look back and here again, analyze the positive, not problem solve what went wrong. Look at what went well so you can duplicate it. And so what this tends to do is it creates an upward spiral as opposed to a downward looking negative approach to analyze what didn't go right. And this actually can be, um, you know, sort of a breath of fresh air in conversations with patients or clients. And this appreciative style can really engage behavior change because um, it, it allows people to move forward in a way that they realize they can do in other parts of their lives, being positive. Now, this appreciative style is great, but sometimes it does need to go beyond the individual. So the social ecological model of change is something good to keep in the back of your mind, because even when an individual has made that positive choice to move forward, it's possible that things in their environment or their immediate community um, or household could bring up some challenges. So this social ecological model recognizes the social influences on health and disease, that it's not just us working independently, you know, of each other, that we are deeply influenced by relationships, by our community and by society in general. So looking at the interpersonal community, organizational and public policy levels can help support the person to move forward. So for example, once the individual has enough knowledge, has changed their attitude and beliefs about change, next you may need to move into things that could have an effect on their ability to move forward. So let's look, for example, at somebody who wants to improve their nutrition and have a more healthy eating style. Well, what if they have a spouse who just loves um, junk food and brings junk food into the home? That creates a temptation and a barrier that an individual has to work through um, if their spouse is not in the same place in terms of moving forward with healthy eating. There could be um, social networks, norms in the community. What about a work community where uh, coworkers go out to eat every day for lunch? And so now they've got to find ways to navigate that um, social interaction that allows them to make healthy choices and move forward even if those around them are not ready. And then even further into some of the informal structures, regulations, policies, you know, what is available in their community in terms of fresh foods and um, their neighborhood grocery store, you know, markets, farmer's markets, things like that. Is it a food desert? And so these are all things to consider even when the individual feels ready. You might have to go beyond that, which is where the social ecological model is ideal for considering some of the things that might 
be in the client's surroundings. And this also ties into the stages of change. For example, helping relationships is part of that social support. You know, social liberation, finding out, is there a 5K that you could sign up for as part of your motivation to continue to train and walk or run every day? Are there places in the community where you might be able to find classes, uh, you know, workout facilities? Are there farmer's markets to help support healthy eating? You know, are there restaurants that have menus with calories available to help make choices? Um, What are the social norms? You know, are you in a community where biking or walking to work would be okay and and safe? Um, You know, watching televisions, walking groups at lunch, at work. So some of these things um, at various levels in the community could really make a difference in making things easy or more challenging for individuals to adopt adopt different healthy behaviors. So now that we have an idea of these conversational approaches that might be useful, like MI, appreciative inquiry, and considering the social ecological um, effects of somebody's community, you know, how do we go about the structure for this process? So this is where a coaching model, in this case, a five-step coaching model can really be helpful for creating a collaborative approach with the client. So we start ideally with getting to know the individual, understanding where they're at, which is requiring a lot of empathy and understanding that empathic listening, and then finding their motivation, then building their confidence so that they can move forward with a goal, you check in on the goal, and then you start over. So we're going to go through each of these to kind of get a little bit more background on the details of each of these stages in the five-step coaching model. So regardless of what area of practice you're going in, this can be a good way to try to promote behavior change um, because it is going to allow you to get at the things that really lead to sustainable change. So starting with getting to know people, it can be critical to building rapport and lead to the fruitful coaching conversations because they don't start out with being resistant or um resentful of your interaction that you're going to be telling them what to do which is what they might be used to in a traditional healthcare setting so empathy is defined as understanding another situation and not even just you know what they're saying to you but also their feelings and their motivations you know where are they coming from you're not the expert in their life they are and also finding out what stage of change are, are they in and, and respecting it. So if they're not ready, not forcing it and telling them that's just not going to work. They, it can be eye-opening and actually sort of freeing for you to say to them, I understand you're not ready to change your exercise habits right now, but I'm here for you when you're ready and you'd like more information about that. Is there another area, though, that you might want to explore? And then you can work that way. Now, Empathy has some pretty important things to remember, and it's important for just building that caring relationship. It allows you to be viewed as trustworthy and that that individual can trust you in helping them move forward with the behavior change. And part of what instills that trustworthiness is your ability to reflect back. It shows that you're listening. It shows that you're caring. And that you're attempting to understand. And by being non-judgmental, you show your acceptance of them wherever they're at. And that you have compassion. And that you're respectful. You know, sometimes you, you get sort of this feeling that some practitioners um, in a traditional setting, they, they 
often don't even make eye contact. Their eyes are on um, the computer or laptop working on the medical record as you're talking. And so they're not truly understanding or listening. And so that respect, even just in making eye contact, can be critical. And that you're supportive of where they're at and that you'd like to change. And this next one is interesting too. Being genuinely curious. We don't always get that from healthcare practitioners, that they're genuinely curious where you're coming from. Sometimes you get the impression that they know what's best and they're just going to tell you what you should be doing and not trying to understand where you are at. And that requires a huge amount of listening. It also means sometimes taking the time to do the listening, which is a constraint in the traditional model. If you've got a 20 minute appointment or a half hour appointment and you know that starting to ask questions is going to take up a lot of time, some practitioners may avoid it because they know they don't have a lot of time, particularly if they're already behind in their appointment schedule. So there's three levels of listening to consider here, and they can be pretty important for building rapport and and empathy. The first level is sort of this internal listening, which is ideally what we want to get beyond. This is when you're listening to the words that the person is saying, but you're really looking at how they mean to, what they mean to you personally. This awareness is on yourself as the listener rather than the other person who is speaking. Ideally, this next level is where we want to be at a minimum and ideally beyond this. This is listening with an awareness of them. And you're just focused as a mirror, which is where reflections come in. This is not attached to your own agenda or thoughts. This is where you are able to get into some empathic listening. And your reflections and mirror back to them will allow you to clarify where they are at. And it fosters that collaborative conversation. The person feels heard. The focus is on them, not on what those words mean to you as the coach or practitioner or professional. But even better than that is to try to go to a third level. And this is what's called global listening. This goes beyond what they're saying and just looking at them. You're using everything available to you to better understand. You may notice that they're looking at the floor. You may notice that their their hands, they're kind of kneading their hands or fingers. That um, they keep, you know, touching their neck. You're noticing tension. So it's not just what you're hearing. It is what you're feeling, what the intuition you're getting here. You know, you're getting a sense of what's going on. Um, you know, are you seeing tension? Are they, what is their body language telling you? Are they even looking at you? Do they seem nervous? Are they tense? Um, you know, what is their tone of voice like? Do they seem irritated or frustrated? And then giving that space, you know, you could say, I'm getting the sense that you're a little frustrated. Can you tell me more about what you're feeling right now? What can you tell me about what you're experiencing? Um, you know, just giving it space so that you could find out, well, you know, I felt like last time we didn't really get to the root of what's going on. I would like a chance to talk about how this is not working for me. And so then you find out, okay, we need to take a different approach. So this kind of corresponds with the listening that leads to empathy. So the first level of internal listening really is more of a cognitive empathy. So now you hear their words and you can start to see things and 
understand their perspective. But that understanding that can go beyond that, the individual words and get to the emotions can be really helpful. This is where you really get into building rapport and you develop a chemistry as the practitioner or client uh, with that client. So I, not only are you understanding the perspective, you can also understand how they feel about it because often our feelings are really big in influencing our behaviors. And one better than that is if you can begin to sense their need. So being able to say, I'm getting the feeling that maybe we need to talk more about this. What are your thoughts on that? So sensing it, man, you can really, really get a high quality conversation and build rapport. If you are able to sense what's going on, I'm sensing some tension today on this topic. If this is not where you'd like to go, how would you like the conversation to go today? What else would you like to talk about instead? And again, that can be freeing. It can allow people to address what's truly on their mind. Now, once you've worked to connect with people and develop empathy, get an understanding of where they are, where they're at in their life, because that can further inform their motivation. Now we can move in to discovering their reasons for change. And ideally, we don't want to focus on external motivations. We want them to be internal motivations because a lot of research shows that things like um, doing it because your doctor says you need to, um, doing it because there's a competition at work to win a prize, those might lead to a short-term change, but they're not often something that's sustainable. It doesn't stick for a long period of time. Now, some of what we can do to increase motivation or discover motivation we've just talked about, and that's motivational interviewing. But there's another one we'll also briefly mention here called self-determination theory that can be really important for discovering internal motivators. So here's just that same slide we saw before about motivational interviewing skills and practicing and perfecting your ORs skills, open-ended questions, affirmations, reflections, and summarizing, and remembering to ask permission and to do the elicit, provide, elicit approach when you are providing information, these can really get at building empathy and discovering motivation, evoking change talk. But self-determination theory can be another thing to consider here because you may begin to realize if you're still kind of working on motivational interviewing skills, if you can remember some of these basic tenets of increasing internal motivation, then you can move forward even just in remembering this. Internal motivation versus external motivation is really differed by three core psychological needs, and that is autonomy. Nobody likes to feel controlled, which is why the traditional approach of you need to do this does not work. We like to feel in control of our own lives. And so the more you can motivate people to find that autonomy so that they feel like they're in control of moving forward, they're going to be more likely to make a change. But in order to make that change, they need to feel competent. They need to feel as though they have the ability, skills, and knowledge to do it, which is where maybe that asking permission and providing the information that they need, the relevant stuff, that can be important. And then relatedness, this gets to their support and connection so that they don't feel alone, right? That connectedness, the ability to move forward, that they're not alone. 
Now, this long-lasting change that is more of an internal motivation, if it can be structured around this idea of not feeling controlled, feeling as though you're competent, have the ability and skills and knowledge, and this support or relatedness can be something you can foster in these conversations to find that motivation so that their performance, persistence, and creativity lead to an increased confidence. Once you've explored that motivation, we can finally move forward with increasing self-confidence and self-efficacy. Now remember, self-efficacy is this ability to carry something out, your belief that you have what it takes to carry it out. And as the we'll talk about in a moment here, past successes, finding out their strengths, brainstorming strategies, and appreciating the positive, much like we talked about an appreciative inquiry, can help people build their self confidence. So it doesn't help if somebody's like, I really want to do this, but they have no way to start. They're not really sure what to do next. That's not necessarily going to cause them to take those next steps. So building self-confidence, once you've built a relationship of empathy, found out what motivates them, here we can build them up so that they can move forward. So for this, we'll go back to social cognitive theory. We'll talk about a positive approach and something more recently developed called hope theory as a way to consider helping people gain self-confidence. Now, social cognitive theory you've probably heard about before. That is the use of about three different factors, and these have smaller components, personal, environmental, and behavioral factors that lead to behaviors. Personal factors like beliefs and feelings, environmental factors like social support and role models, and your own experience and sense of accomplishment tend to inform whether you will complete a behavior. So this ability to do something, your belief in your ability to do something, can come from four sources related to this. So these personal beliefs and feelings lead to physiological or affective states. Now it may be that somebody has a disability and so their physical ability to do something is altered. It could though be that their mood or their belief is affecting their, their ability to do something. That's where the personal factors come into play. But it's also possible that things in their environment, it could be that you as the coach, the practitioner, you're going to be able to provide that verbal persuasion through a coaching conversation so that they can discover their motivation themselves. But it's also true based on social cognitive theory that sometimes having a positive role model or talking to somebody can be really helpful. That social support can go beyond just, you know, trying not to have junk food in the house, for example, in the case of a spouse. It could go forward into, hey, you know what? I have a really good friend who lost like 30 pounds last year. Maybe I'll talk to her about what worked for her and see, you know, if she has any suggestions. You know, it can be really motivating and inspiring to see other people having been successful and you begin to have hope that you can do the same. However, mastery experiences are one of the biggest ways to increase self-efficacy because that accomplishment, that sense of your ability to do it goes up as you see that you could possibly do it again. So that mastery experience is like, hey, I did it. I went that entire day without 
going over on my calories. I went the entire day without diving into the candy bowl that sits on my desk. So that sense of accomplishment fosters your ability to move forward. Now, this has been a very informative theory over the years in terms of looking at the ability for people to change their behavior. More recently, there's been a movement in psychology to instead of focus on the negative, on how to fix people, allow individuals and societies to flourish by focusing on what's working, focusing on the positive, not just fixing people, but how to help people flourish. So this kind of focuses on finding strengths, finding virtues that are really important to people, that they do really well. But that sometimes means helping them discover what is important to them. So this positive emotions and feeling good, um, this is called the PERMA model, which is based on engagement, positive emotion, relationships, finding meaning, and a sense of accomplishment or achievement in life. That these tend to be what help individuals and communities thrive. So this PERMA model is adopted more recently as a, a model of well-being that doesn't focus on trying to fix the negatives, but rather embrace the positives. And in fact, other researchers looking further into the effects of positivity have found that positive emotions and fostering positive emotions can lead to resiliency, creativity, happiness, increasing life satisfaction. In fact, the original researcher, Dr. Seligman, who came up with this PERMA model, did a ton of research on happiness, has a really great book called Authentic Happiness. And his research on human flourishing has really helped increase happiness in individuals when they focus on positive emotions, engagement, relationships, meaning, and accomplishment. And this Background on positivity has shown us that the more we can change our approach to problem solving to focus on positivity, we can also balance out one of the biggest things that tends to come up for people in behavior change is these automatic negative thoughts. And we all have them. But if we can counter those with positive statements, positive outlooks, and positive self-talk, we can often flip the conversation and our internal thinking more towards positive behavior change. And this further, in fact, one of the researchers that was really um, into looking at more positive thoughts and positive emotions, Dr. Friedman, she um, looked into 10 positive emotions that if you can try to foster those in every day, you tend to be more happy. And that also led into the further development of hope theory. One of the positive emotions of hope can really help individuals move forward with behavior change. Building confidence can help with having hope. And so Finding inspiring goals and pathways to change can really help people increase self-confidence. Hopefulness is a life-sustaining human strength that is comprised of three distinct but related components. And this is where we're going next, is this idea of goals thinking. Having a clear conceptualization of what you want 
and then finding the pathways toward that, which may include developing capacity and strategies to reach the goals, and then finding the ability to initiate and sustain the motivation for using those strategies. This leads us to SMART goals, right? This, so we've built empathy. We've found out the motivation. We've tried to increase confidence. If they're confident enough to now move forward, we can actually set goals. And you've probably heard these before, right? SMART goals are kind of important, particularly in behavior change, because they require the individual to specifically outline something measurable. And these last ones sometimes have different words associated with them, depending on whether they're coming from more of a business field or more of a health behavior change field. Action-oriented goals are really important. It can't just be that I'm going to improve my nutrition because that doesn't tell me what specifically you are going to do to take action toward it. But you could also say attainable. Is this too lofty? Is this so far beyond your current ability that you're just going to be frustrated and fail, which doesn't improve your self-efficacy or confidence? Is it realistic? So this attainable and realistic sometimes could indicate the same idea. Is it meaningful to you right now? Is it relevant? Because if it's not, we should explore something else. But in any case, you always want to have some sort of time measurement. When are you going to do this? When are you going to check in that you've completed it? How will you know you've been successful? By what date? These are all important parts of setting up SMART goals. Now, setting up SMART goals with individuals is sometimes easier said than done because people tend to not create these in the beginning. They just say, I'm going to do this or that. So it's helpful to know when you're hearing people talk whether it's a SMART goal or not so that you can ask follow-up questions to have them define something more specifically. So if they're saying, well, I really want to lose 10 pounds. In fact, I will. I'm going to lose 10 pounds. Well, no, that's not a SMART goal. So you might need to say, well, what will you do toward losing weight? And they'll say, well, I'm going to eat less processed foods and increase my vegetables. That's still not a SMART goal. So here, still, no, not a SMART goal. You might need to say, um, let's sort of shift gears here. Let's say you're going to lose 10 pounds. Well, what might you do? Well, maybe this week I will exercise three times for 20 minutes each. And you could go even further and say, well, which days will you exercise and what will you do? Well, on Monday before work, I'll walk the dog. Um, on Wednesday, I'll go to the park with a friend at lunch. Um, on Saturday, I'll ride my bike in the path near my house. That is a SMART goal because it tells you when, how often, how much. And so that by the end of the week, you'll have done these things. Well, what about this one? I will call my friend Mary on Tuesday after work and tell her I'm going to make a plan for adopting the healthy habits. Now, while a little nebulous in terms of what that plan is, you are saying on what day, what you're going to do and what you're going to say. So this could be a sort of early SMART goal, that they're making the plan. But what's kind of nice about this one is it has the accountability piece. You are telling somebody. Now, what about somebody, again, who's early in the stages? They're not yet ready to make the specific change, to be active, but they're still researching. This would be the contemplation stage or preparation stage in the stages of change. 
I will research yoga studios in my town. Find one that holds classes on Wednesdays. That could be a good goal, depending on whether somebody is in an early stage of change. You could even go further by this and say, well, when? By when will you have done that? By the next time we talk, by next week, you'll have called to find out? Yes. So you can ask a follow-up question. And you can't necessarily expect them to say it in the form of a SMART goal. But through your follow-up questions, you could further flesh that out. Now, beginning with this exploration of goals, it kind of is helpful to realize why they work. Why do we need this level of detail? Well, there's an entire goal-setting theory that exists out there that has shown through research that goals are really important because they are a major source of motivation and having a goal tends to improve your performance because effective goal setting increases your productivity skills. And so original researchers, Locke and Latham, of the goal setting theory came up with this 4CF model of goal setting, that it's really important to have clarity in the goal. This is why it needs to be specific. Having that level of detail will help individuals know what they specifically need to do. But here's where that attainable and relevant part comes into play. You don't want it to be too easy because too easy and they're not motivated. However, if they're too hard, that can also not be motivating because they're not looking forward to it. They're worried about the defeat and they don't want to be defeated. So having that just right level of challenge and complexity can be really important here. The more straightforward it is, the better. The more likely they're going to be a success. If it's complicated, has lots of steps, that's not going to be very motivating. But having that commitment and then feedback, that accountability and tracking piece is really important. So this is kind of where the SMART goals came from, from research that indicated that you need to have clarity, the right amount of challenge, the right amount of complexity, a commitment, and some feedback. Now, you can also begin with the end in mind. Backwards goal setting can be really important here. So having a vision. Remember in the TTM when we talked about that self-reevaluation, creating a vision of where you want to be can help inform what kind of goals you will create. But it's also helpful to have both long and short-term goals because this vision may lead to what you're thinking you want in a year, six months, three months. But that doesn't tell you the exact behaviors you need to do in the next week to have this happen. So that one week or few days of a short-term goal can be more specific to tell the person what they're going to do that will lead them to these long-term goals. So here is where you can help flesh that out with somebody. Some people may be resistant to making a goal that is smart, but you can flesh it out with them by asking specific questions. What is it that you're going to do in the next week? What behavior exactly? And then if they're kind of, you know, a little wishy-washy on that, go back to their motivation. What is it that you think you could do that will move you closer to being able to spend time with your grandchildren without being out of breath? So how does it relate to your purpose, your values, your vision? You want to be around for your grandkids. You want to see them grow up. You want to see them graduate from high school. What are the things that will get you in that moving in that direction? So then maybe they'll be more ready to talk about what action they will take that will move them toward that end that they have in mind. And then when. 
So how will they prioritize this so that they can actually act on it? So again, this, this is where that coaching conversation comes in, helping them flesh this out because on their own, they might not develop enough detail to move forward. And so you may think you're all set. You got this goal determined. Excellent. Send them on their way. Well, no. Um, once you have the goal, it can really be important to determine their level of confidence because you could have had this amazing conversation setting this very specific smart goal. But then you say, well, you know, on a level of one to 10, how confident are you that you can complete this in the next week? Zero being not confident at all. And actually this works better if it's a zero. Um, not confident at all and 10 being highly confident. Well, and then they say, well, I'm probably at about a five. And you're like, oh man, we just had this huge conversation setting this awesome smart goal. Why are they not more confident? Well, it's kind of important to figure that out because maybe the goal's just not realistic for them in this next week. You know, realistic goals are attainable goals and attainable goals lead to success. Success breeds success and then more motivation to continue. So it doesn't work well if you create this awesome smart goal only to find out that it's just not attainable for them in the next week. You know, what if they were to say, well, you say, well, what made it a five and not a three or a four? So this is where some sort of follow-up question can be helpful. You know, well, maybe this week there's something more important. Maybe their confidence is low here because in the next week they've got this big project. They really want to exercise more, but... There is something that has a greater priority or importance on their schedule for this week. So checking in with them on the level of importance or confidence during the week can be really important. You may think you have this awesome SMART goal, but it's just not realistic or attainable this week. So this is where it can be important because if a client picks lower than a six on a confidence scale, you might need to reconsider. There could be other factors preventing them from carrying it out this week. And maybe you need to have a different goal, something that's a little bit less lofty or something that's altogether different. Now, let's say you've got the SMART goal, you checked on their confidence level and they're feeling as though they can move forward with this in the next week. You've got to follow up, right? The follow-up is important because without that, they may not feel as though anybody cares. Why am I going to go through all this? Yet, if they know that somebody's going to be checking in on them, they may be more likely to follow through. And sometimes even the social support of having a buddy system. Maybe they have a spouse that can go on walks with them in the evening. Um, maybe instead there's a tracking system that could be beneficial. And I'll talk about some more of those in just a second. Maybe if it's not you... Maybe it's a spouse or a friend, somebody else that they can reach out to that helps them become accountable. Now, if they like tracking systems, they may be able to share some of the data with you or their support system, their spouse, their friend, um, because there are a ton of things that can be used like mobile apps, helping them track steps, tracking blood glucose, tracking blood pressure. Some people who maybe aren't as tech savvy or as interested in that may prefer a sort of paper and pen approach, journaling. And this can be good because it can even allow them to reflect on what's going on around them at the time. So they could say, I was really good about getting in a 15 minute walk on Tuesday. It didn't work out Wednesday. Well, let's look at what you wrote down on Tuesday that helped you fit that in. So that appreciative inquiry can allow them to go back with reflection to figure out what worked on the days that things went well. 
Now, pedometers, heart rate monitors, scales, blood tests, you know, things that allow them to track activity or even log things like calories, numbers of fruits and, veg fruits and vegetables, number of cups of water that they consumed, um, and even sleeping. If we're talking about all of the different lifestyle behaviors, this may go beyond just tracking steps or tracking calories. We may need to track stress levels, sleep, number, amount of water consumed, their general feelings of stress. So these can all be really important to helping people move forward with the various parts of their lifestyle. And then circling right back around, you've checked in and set up the accountability. Well, the next time you talk to that person, you go back to a place of understanding and acceptance so that you can listen, find out how things went, reflect that back, and use that as a way to move forward, either with um moving through any barriers to what happened in the previous week, finding the positives, helping them move forward with that lifestyle behavior, or maybe even moving toward another one. And so this becomes just a big cycle, always going back to empathy and understanding where they're at now, because maybe they're at a different place now than they were a week ago because they had some success. Their confidence has been built up. They're ready to go through and set another goal. They're beginning ideally to move forward themselves and building sustainable change. But behavior change is complex. So there is a lot to consider. You know, you may need to periodically reassess their stage of change, particularly because they could be at different stages for different lifestyle behaviors and reassessing their preferences, motivations, and barriers because those change over time. And then reconsidering your ability to have a fruitful conversation. Are there things that you could do to improve your counseling style, improving your MI skills, looking more into styles of appreciative inquiry? considering various things in their social ecological model, the social norms, their support systems, their community influences. Now, as I said, a lot of this takes practice, but even some of these conversational approaches can help you in everyday relationships. So I encourage you to use some of these just in your everyday conversations as a way to practice these styles of conversation that can help you with clients and patients and moving forward with behavior change. So for more information on this, make sure you see some of the module um, resources for details on MI skills, appreciative inquiry, and other types of examples of conversational styles that can help with behavior change.